Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. All you dads, props today. Glad you're here. From one dad to another, happy Father's Day. Hope, hope your family's spoiling you just a little bit today, and then you can get back to work tomorrow, right? Hey, uh, we're in a, a, a summer teaching series called Summer Playlist. These messages have nothing to do with the ones that are connected to it. Each one is kind of a one-off standalone message. And um, today, um, this is a message I actually uh, preached at uh, Capital City Church a few, week, uh, few months ago. Uh, Tim Collins invited me up there to, to teach there, and so I taught it there. Went well. I said, all right, let's try to get Grace Point, see what happens. Um, but this is, today's message is about something that um, if, if you were to take all the conversations that I've had as a pastor over the last 20 years or so, this is probably the topic um, the question, the issue that I have had more conversations about than, than any other, you know, those word picture or those word clouds. Um, if you were to take a word cloud of all of the conversations I've had as a pastor, this would be the biggest one. This would be right in the middle of it. And it's something that you've thought about before. It's maybe something you've questioned before. Um, if you've never thought of it or questioned before, you've heard other people think of it or question it before. Um, but the thing that I want to go after today is what, what is God's will for me? What is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that before? Ever thought that question before? What is God's will? Maybe it's about, you know, generally speaking, maybe it's about a specific issue in your life or a specific decision that you're making. Uh, what, what, what's God's will? I, I grew up in church. I'm a church kid. Um, so I remember as a teenager sitting in church, hearing pastors talk about God's will. And, and, and you got to figure out what God's will is. And you got to stay inside of God's will. And if you don't, all kinds of things are going to happen to you that you don't want to have happen to you. And I thought, okay, that's great. That's fair. How do I know? How do I know? How am I supposed to figure that out? And then, um, you know, I got a little bit older and I got into the, the age and the stage of life where the really big decisions came. Like where you go to college and what's your occupation going to be? And wrestling with my calling into ministry and, and who I married, that one ended up really good for me, okay? So those kinds of big decisions that are going to like last for a long time and affect all kinds of areas in your life. And, and I just wrestled with that. And, and sometimes I felt like I had a pretty good handle on what God's will was for that and and specific decisions, specific situations. And sometimes I was just like, oh, I don't, I don't really know. I, I, it's not like I could open my Bible and find specific answers to specific questions that I had, right? Um, it, it, I felt kind of like the helicopter pilot flying around Seattle one day and uh, electrical malfunction takes out his navigation device. And so he's, he's a little bit lost. He doesn't know how to get back to the airport. And so he, he pulls up as close as he can next to this really big building and he writes a sign on a big piece of paper as much as big as he can get it and he puts it up against his window and it says, where am I? And the people in the building see this sign and they get together a big poster board and they put, you know, the answer to the question, they hold it up against their window and it said, you're in a helicopter. And the pilot smiles and waves and he takes off and looks at his map and he eventually gets back to the airport and his co-pilot said, that was not helpful at all. How in the world did you know how to get back to the airport? And the pilot said, well, the people in the building gave me an answer that was technically correct, but completely useless. 
So I knew it was Microsoft headquarters that I was at. <laughs> so this message is, you know, comes to you by Apple, right? And I'm just letting you know. You know where I stand, right? But, but do you ever feel that way when you read the Bible or maybe even when you come to church? It's like, great message, Tim. Technically correct. Absolutely useless, right? Or maybe you're having conversations about God's will. And, okay, that, like, like I, that's partly helpful, but it doesn't really help with this situation that's right in front of me. And then there's the other thing where, where you'll, you'll read scripture, you'll study scripture, you'll hear a message, you'll discuss God's will, and it's not helpful at all. It's like the exact opposite of what you need. And, and for some of us, this isn't an issue we think about very much. Maybe it's too big. It's too confusing. You're like, I'll let the theologians deal with that, Tim. I'm just trying to raise my kids, right? For others of you, this, this, this is something that you already have an idea of how to make decisions. You have some guiding principles, that you either adopted or maybe your parents taught you. Um, maybe just throughout life, you've figured out, this is how I'm going to make decisions. For others, you're wrestling with this right now. I, I told first service the same thing I'll tell you. In, in a room this size with this many people, you're dealing with this right now. What do I do in a relationship? What do I do with a job? What do I do with a move? What do I do with something going on with my kids? What do I do about I mean, my future? It's a little fuzzy. I'd, I'd like just to have an answer about some future stuff. So you're, you're right here, right now, wrestling with this. And, and, and maybe you go, uh, again, a little even further. Maybe you're afraid you're going to make a wrong decision. And you're, you're so afraid that you don't make a decision. And you're just stuck. And that's not a good place to be either. And so I think, I think God... God has some direction for us. I don't think he says, hey, here's, here's my will, figure it out on your own. I, I think he actually gives us some direction for this. So I want to talk about this today. What, what is God's will? How do we figure it out? What's the grid? And let's, I, like, I got I to gotta just admit this up front. Like, you're not going to walk out of here after a 35-minute message and get God's will. Got it. Yep, I'm good. Right? Because people way smarter than me for thousands of years have had to wrestle with this and figure this out. We could, do, we could do a year-long series on God's will and then just barely scratch the surface of it. So we're not getting out of here with, with you know, a 35-minute message and answers for everything. I understand it's a little more complicated than this, but I do believe, I do think that God has some direction for us when it comes to his will. So we're going to look at his word, which we always want to do. If you want to follow along in a Bible or a mobile device, 1 Samuel 24 is where we'll be. That's in the Old Testament. Start at Genesis Go right, you'll get there, all right? 1 Samuel 24. Um, this is a story some of you are familiar with, maybe many of you are familiar with. If you're familiar with it, I just want you to, to not go toward the end, okay? Stay with me. Don't finish it in, in your mind, because you know how it ends. But, but buried in this story, I think it's just an incredible illustration of how God's will works out practically, okay? Two main characters in the story, David and Saul. These are the first um, first two kings of Israel, Saul's the first king of Israel. David is the second king of Israel. At this point, Saul is the king of Israel. But Saul knows that he, his, his, his time of being king is, is short. He knows David has been anointed the next king of Israel. 
And so, in, in fact, he hates David for it. He hates David for it so much that he actually starts hunting him. He actually wants to kill him. He actually tries to kill him a couple times. And that's kind of where our story picks up. 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now this, an audience in ancient, ancient history would read this and go, oh yeah, I know where that is. It's just the details of this, so specific. He came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there. This next part may be the only reference to this in the entire Bible. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, so... Saul is hunting David with an army of 3,000 men. David maybe has 30 to 50 men. So they're outnumbered. They're making their way through the desert. And Saul, again, it might be the only reference in the entire Bible. Saul has to take a pit stop. And when the king has to take a pit stop, you take a pit stop, right? And so Saul gets off his horse, goes up into this cave for some privacy. And lo and behold, David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men, speaking of David's men, said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, pause. Think about this. This is amazing. David has already been anointed king, the next king of Israel, right? The, the prophet Samuel shows up at his house, and Jesse brings all of his sons forward, says, these are all my sons. And Jesse's like, nope, 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 nope. Any other sons? Oh, yeah. We didn't even think to invite David. Go get him. Brings David in. Samuel says, he's it. This is the next king of Israel. So, so God tells him right there, anoint David as the next king. That means David knows what God's will is. Tracking? David knows what God's will is. And apparently, sitting around the campfire at night with his men, as they're traveling, as they're, you know, trying to escape Saul, as they're off on their missions, David told his men about what would happen. He's like, guys, stick with me one day, and, and one day, you're going to be the king's men, not just David's men. I know we're out here hiding in the desert, being hunted like animals, but God promised me, Samuel anointed me, and I'm going to be the next king. And maybe he broke out into a rendition of, I just can't wait to be king from Lion King. I don't know. It's not in scripture. Maybe, right? So his men have heard David talk about this. And there they are waiting in some random cave, waiting for Saul and his army to pass by. And once they pass by, they go the other way and they escape. And lo and behold, out of all the caves in the desert, Saul walks into the very cave they're in, just far enough in so Saul's army can't see, and, and pardon the imagery, disrobes and assumes the most vulnerable position a human being can assume. He's 10 to 15 yards maybe from David, we don't know, and David's men are going, is this a God thing or what? Like, what are the odds, David? Only God could bring your enemy within striking distance alone and completely defenseless. 
I mean, imagine this. Again, you, some of you know the story. This is, this is just, just imagine. This is a story made. Story, this is the things movies are made of. What if you're Saul's men, Saul's army, waiting outside the cave, and Saul disappears into the cave, and 20 minutes later, David walks out with Saul's severed head in his hand and just drops it. What do you do? You throw your weapons down and you claim David is the next king because only God could have done that. Only God could have taken Saul out of the entire desert, put him in the same cave that David was in. Oh, that, this is a God thing. God promised David would be king. Saul had to die in order for David to be king because ancient kings didn't just up and retire to Florida. And if you know the story, Saul actually deserved to die. He deserved to die. So there's nothing about this story. There's nothing about these circumstances that you could add to make it look more like a God thing. So pause. Pause right here. Take a step back out of the story. Let's just talk about us. Here's what I know about you. I don't know everything about you, but here's what I do know about you. When opportunities line up with your prayers and your passions it's almost impossible to exercise restraint. When opportunities come your way and it lines up with things you've been praying about and things you're passionate about, it's, that's obviously a God thing. It's almost impossible to exercise restraint. It could be a job, it could be a relationship, it could be an investment, it could be a political candidate could be whatever. You've been praying about it. You're passionate about it. In that kind of environment, in that kind of decision, it's almost impossible to exercise restraint. Hey, this is why there's so much consumer debt in America, right? Oh, honey, I've been praying about this. And, and I saw it and it was like angels just started singing. It's a God thing, right? Maybe it's why you married who you married, prayer and passion, Prayer and passion. It's certainly why you have kids. When you mix what you've been praying about and what you're passionate about, it's so emotional. And come on, when it's emotional, our brains get foggy. Our brains get really foggy and, and it's almost impossible for us to exercise any kind of restraint in those emotionally saturated environments. That cave was not an emotionally neutral environment. It's hard for us to pick it up. When we're, it's hard to pick up the emotion when you're just reading an ancient document on paper. But come on. They, they, they've been running from this guy for months. He, he's hunting them. They knew David was the next king. They'd never been able to get close enough to Saul because he's the king and he's got people around him and here he is. 15 yards away. Obviously, God set this up to transition David to be king. And let me tell you something else I know about you. <laughs> you aren't very good at evaluating circumstances. You're, you're just not. And the reason I know you're not is because I'm not. And you and I are alike. When, when it comes to looking at circumstances... And making decisions, we, we think we're experts and we think we've got great intuition. And ladies, yes, you have a leg up on us in this. It's true. You do. 
But every single one of us can also point to a moment in our life where we looked at circumstances and we made a decision and we look back on that and we think, that was the dumbest decision I think I've ever made. I thought, I thought that was a shooting star telling me about my dreams, but it was actually a meteor that crushed them. <laughs> Just because it looks like a God thing doesn't mean it's a God thing. Opportunities. Opportunities must be weighed against something other than the uniqueness of the circumstances surrounding them. Here's another way to say it. An open door isn't necessarily an invitation from God. That's, that's another one of those things that has made our, its way into our theology. And yeah, you can find a couple of verses in Scripture that talk about an open door, but just because a door opens doesn't necessarily mean it's an invitation from God. We, we say that. God just opened this door for me. Did he? How do you know? How do you know it's not just circumstances that lined up with your prayers and your passions? How do you know? I think we have to weigh those things. We have to weigh those opportunities. We have to weigh those decisions against something other than the circumstances that are right in front of us because we'll always be faced with circumstances. There will always be some level of emotion surrounding them because we're not robots. We shouldn't operate as robots. God gave us emotion. He gave us feelings. There will always be opportunities that line up with prayer and passion and it's everything God promised and it's right there in front of you and all you got to do is this one simple thing and everything you've dreamed of is yours. How do you know? How do you know? How is it? Back to the story. How is it that David, like filled with all that emotion, fitted with a promise from God and flanked by his men who are saying, kill him, kill him, kill him. Or better yet, David, I'll kill him. You stay here. You, you keep the blood off your hands. I'll go kill him for you. How is it that David was able to resist that? And here's where I think we need to pay attention to David, the man who had a heart after God. How, why, why is it that David and his response, what about David's response? Can we learn about making decisions? Well, I, I think David weighed that situation. He weighed that opportunity against three things outside of the circumstances that he was faced with right then and there. And here's the grid that I want to give you, okay? Three things. I've just called them three filters for determining God's will, okay? Number one, the law of God, that pesky little thing. The law of God, the principles of God, which are very difficult to discern, especially when there's emotion involved, and the wisdom of God. Law of God, principles of God, wisdom of God. Jump back into the story with me and we'll kind of see how these three things play out. Last part of verse four. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You know how he's able to creep up and cut off a corner of Saul's robe without Saul knowing? Because Saul was disrobed. He wasn't near his robe. So David does this afterward. You get a little bit of David's heart here. David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my, circle this word, master. In the midst of all that emotion, in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of all the advice in that cave, David realizes regardless of the circumstantial evidence, regardless of what my men are saying, regardless of even how I feel about this, newsflash, 
it's against the law to kill the king. You know that whole thou shalt not kill thing? That applies to the king, guys. Right? And, and the fact that the king is trying to kill me doesn't nix God's law. Doesn't completely overrule it. But David, but David, come on. Why would God give such an open door to something that's against the law? Maybe God didn't open the door. But David, you, one little pesky law outweighs all the circumstantial evidence? Yeah. He's my master. He's the king. You don't kill the king. Your master's trying to kill you. Doesn't matter. It does not matter. You don't kill the king. So, David, what you're saying is you're willing to potentially go into a civil war where hundreds, if not thousands of men are going to die when you could take care of it by just killing one person right now. That's what I'm saying. I'm not willing to do that because it's against God's law. David says, doesn't matter. Look at the rest of that verse. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He reminds them that Saul is the anointed king twice in the same sentence. Not only is he the king, he's the king God put in place. So God's law says thou shalt not kill. God's principle here is you don't replace what God has put in place. And again, I seriously doubt that cute little phrase went through David's mind. But he, he's, David's realized that Saul wasn't just the king in a government tent sense. He was the king in the sense that God placed him there. Just like God will place David there. And you don't replace what God has put in place. Regardless of how he was treating him. Regardless of how ungodly Saul was acting, David realized, I can't replace what God has put in place. Verse 7, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went his way. How do you think those guys felt in that moment? <laughs> you're, you're letting this opportunity go? This is why we follow you, David. This is, this is why we risk our lives for you. And you're just going to let this opportunity go. Look what happens next. Verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Now David is the one in the vulnerable position. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I wonder what Saul's face looked like in that moment. I said, I will not lift my hand against my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I just want you to realize what I could have done, but I didn't. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. Implication, I'm a good guy. You're not such a good guy. I, I've made the right choice. You've consistently made the wrong choice. You're a terrible king, and I'm going to be a better king than you. 
And here's the wisdom of God, verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. I'm going to admit here, I might be reading into the text a little bit, but here's where I think the wisdom of God is. How wise is it for a wannabe king to murder the sitting king? Like, read the, Old, read the Old Testament. How well does it work out for the kings who murder the sitting king? It doesn't work out. And, 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 and beyond that, is this the story you want to tell for the rest of your life, David? Like, Grandpa, tell us again how you became king. Well, there I was in the cave, and the, the evil king came in. And while his back was towards me, I stabbed him in the back and killed him. Oh, you're so brave, Grandpa. Like, is that the story you want to tell? Yes. God anointed you king. That's what he said you're going to be. Did he tell you how you were going to get there? No. So this doesn't necessarily mean this is the wise thing to do. So here's, 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 here's write it down. It's not going to be up on the screen. Write it down. Memorize it, whatever. Everything that looks like a God thing feels like a God thing, and is suggested by others as a God thing, isn't necessarily a God thing. Everything that feels like a God thing, looks like a God thing, oh, God, open this door, and is suggested by others that you trust as a God thing, doesn't necessarily mean it's a God thing. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, we looked at the temptations of Jesus, right? Weren't those just opportunities to do God's will the wrong way? Isn't that, I mean, Satan said to Jesus, isn't this what God wants for you? Kingdoms of the world, isn't that why you came? Yeah, that's why I came. Well, I can get you there. Don't you, don't you want everybody to see your power and your glory? Isn't that why you came? Yeah, that's why you came. Well, I can get you there. And I can get you there today. I can get you there quicker than the cross. It's the opportunity to do God's will the wrong way. Everything that looks like a God thing feels like a God thing and is suggested by others as a God thing, isn't necessarily a God thing. And the question is, what do you do with that? Because if I'm being honest, it kind of seems to confuse the issue more than it helps, right? And, and here's, here's what I think the application is. If you don't hear anything else, please, please, please hear this. High school students, please hear this. Young adults, please hear this. Moms and dads, please hear this. Grandmas and grandpas, please hear this. If we can somehow use this as a grid in our decision-making, when those opportunities are presented or when we go after opportunities, if we can somehow apply this, we will find ourselves, like David, operating under, operating within, operating in the way that Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will. We'll operate underneath God's will. Here's the grid. Every time you're faced with an opportunity, weigh it against the law of God, the principles of God, and the wisdom of God. Every time. Big opportunities, little opportunities, even the most obvious opportunities that it seems like God just dropped this in my lap. Well, have you weighed it against his law? Like, what does God's word say about that? What about, is there a principle here that you need to pay attention to? And what's the, what's the wise thing to do? And, and you know what this means? This means 
before we're faced with the decision, before we're given the opportunity, we should probably put the time and effort into knowing what God's law says. It probably means we need to spend a little bit more time in his word than on Facebook. It probably means we need to spend a little bit more time figuring out what's, what's God's wisdom say about this. Is there a principle here that I need to be paying attention to? Because I don't want to make decisions based on emotion. I don't want to make decisions just based on circumstantial evidence. I want to I make a decision based on something that's more secure than that. Something that's going to stand the test of time. Something that's a firm foundation. Because my emotions come and go. Circumstantial evidence comes and goes. But God's law, whew, that's solid. God's principles, they're going to get you. They're going to save you from making mistakes down the road. And God's wisdom, always, always want that. Whenever I'm making decisions. So let me, let me just show you how this kind of plays out in my little world for a second. Um, I, I was introduced to this, you know, 20 years ago. And ever since, I've tried to make decisions based on these three things. Do I get it right every single time? No, I don't. But, but when it comes to decisions, these are the kinds of things that I want to run the filter through. And for me, when it comes to this idea of, of making decisions submitted to God's law, God's principles, and God's wisdom, I add another layer to it. I add the layer of, I, I need to make sure that I'm giving the right people an all-access pass to the decisions that I make. Okay, um, I, 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 the temptation, especially in this seat that I sit in, the temptation for me is to say, well, I'm the leader. And, and I'm the one who has to make the decision. And, and just side note, the way that the church is set up organizationally is, is the person who can pe keep people engaged for 35 minutes is automatically labeled the best leader. That doesn't make me the best leader. That makes me the best talker. Okay? And, and to think that just because I'm the leader means that all of my decisions are right is way beyond truth. It is way, falls way short of reality. So I've just realized I need to run my decisions. First of all, through the law of God. What, what, what does God's principle say here? What's, what's wisdom say here? And then I've got to give this smarter, more insightful maybe more cautious people around me and all access pass to every decision that I make. And here's why. Because there's coming a day and there have been days where I'm standing in a cave and there's so much emotion and it's things I've been praying about and it's something I'm passionate about and oh, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. And I have to have the right people around me to say, Tim, that is a terrible idea. Tim, have you thought about this? Well, Tim, what happened the last time? And they speak into, not only in the decision, they speak into my heart. They speak into my life. And I don't want to make decisions based on emotion. I don't want to make decisions based on circumstantial evidence. And, like, whenever I know what somebody around me, whether that's the board, whether that's the staff, whether that's my wife, it usually happens more with my wife. When I know she's going to say, however I know she's going to respond and I don't want to hear that response, I know I need to talk to my wife. Every time I know she's, this is what she's going to say and I don't want to hear it. Okay, I got to talk to Jana. Every single time. It's frustrating. 
It checks my pride every single time. It means, especially around here, it probably means we're going to make decisions slower than we probably should. But I know, I just know that I know that I know David's model is better than Saul's. It's just so much better. This is a better way to make decisions. So can I just ask you, do you have people in your life with an all-access pass to your decisions? And you decide who they are. You decide what decisions they are. I mean, if you're a part of a small group, do they have, you know, the trump card when it comes to some of your decisions? If those are the people God has placed in your life, if that's the godly wisdom around you, I mean, why shouldn't you ask your small group whether or not you should buy that car? Is it because you're afraid of the answer you're going to get? Why shouldn't you ask the godly counsel around you, hey, is this a good investment? Hey, I'm thinking about, you know, making a career change. What do you guys think about this? Will you speak into this? If you're a follower of Jesus, that you have other followers of Jesus around you, and you don't ask them to speak in decisions, why not? Because see, the opposite, the opposite of what we said earlier is also true. You never accomplish the will of God. Never. Accomplish the will of God by violating his law, ignoring his principles, or refusing his wisdom. Never. You never, ever, 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 ever accomplish it that way. So why not? Why not invite people into the, to the process? And here's, like, this is the best part, okay? I'm almost done. Do you remember how the story ends? Some of you do. David and his men leave, right? Saul and his men leave. They go their separate directions. And David's men are looking at him like, what did you just do? I can't believe you just blew that one, okay? And weeks later, Saul and his army are fighting against the Philistines. And the battle turns against them. Saul and some of his men find themselves isolated from the rest of their army. And one lone Philistine archer. Don't know his name. Don't know where he was. Don't know if he was even aiming for Saul. But one lone Philistine archer draws back his bow and lets one arrow fly. And that arrow finds a crack in Saul's armor, mortally wounding him. And he asks his armor bearer to kill him. He won't do it. So Saul actually falls on his own sword. It's, it's as if God said, David, I'll, ta- I'll take responsibility for the how. I'll take responsibility. I don't need you to break my law, violate my principles, or ignore my wisdom in order to accomplish my will. I'm capable of getting you where you need to be when you need to be there. And the same is true for you. Same is true for me. That God is capable of getting any man or woman where they need to be when they need to be there, when their heart is submitted to him. The same is true. God is capable of getting us where we need to be without violating his law, breaking his principles, or ignoring his wisdom. And again, everything. (laughs) I just want to tattoo this on my forehead. Everything that looks like a God thing, feels like a God thing, smells like a God thing, is, a, is, is suggested by others as a God thing. 
It's not necessarily a God thing. So find something else. If this isn't it, find something else. But find something else besides emotion and circumstantial evidence to help you make the kinds of decisions that are submitted to your heavenly father. I say start with his, start with his word. Go to his principles and figure out what his wisdom is. And you'll find you're making decisions underneath the banner of his will, underneath the banner of his voice. And you'll be able to live out the kind of life that Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done, not mine. Your will, not mine. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for your spirit. God, you've spoken today. I believe you've spoken today. And now would you give us the wisdom to know what to do with what you have just said to us and then the courage to walk out of this place and to do it. Whether that's an adjustment in our thinking, whether it's a, it's a decision that we walked into this place today ready to make. And now we see I haven't really, I haven't really tested it with anything outside of my emotion, anything outside of circumstantial evidence. God, would you give us the courage the vision, the ability to walk away from this and to apply these things to our lives. God, ultimately, it is, it's not just about making right decisions. <laughs> Anybody can make, it, we, we can make right decisions and end up right places and your grace is over it all. God, ultimately, it's about being submitted to you. It's ultimately about finding the right posture towards you and the life that you've given us. So Jesus, would you make us men and women? Would you make us the kind of church that every single day we wake up and we say, God, what do you want from me today? It's your will, not mine. And help us to walk in that as your spirit leads and as we speak into that with each other. I thank you for the community that you've placed around me, the people, the staff, the board, my wife, friends, who can speak into these things. I'm not alone. I don't have to be alone. Thank you so much for that. God, would you help us to know again what to do with what we've just heard and the courage to do it. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're out four minutes early today. Happy Father's Day, everybody. (laughs) Have a great week. You're dismissed.